Welcome to the Inez Franklin Teaching and Sermons Podcast. Inez is a teaching pastor, public speaker, and founder at trochia.org. Learn more about Inez at www.inezfranklin.com. We hope this teaching brings you guidance, connection, or tools as we seek God together today. Enjoy the teaching. beautiful people who made a decision to get baptized, to live in their new identity as Christ's children. Speaking of choices and making choices, by the way, I'm Ines Franklin, and I'm so glad that you're here this morning, that you made a choice to be at church today. I don't think it's a coincidence that you're here, and you'll see by what God has to teach us this morning. We all make decisions on a regular basis, right? We're always making, making choices. We have lots of choices before us. And in fact, scientists have uh, done a study at Cornell University saying that the average adult makes about 70 decisions every day. Now, I think that's a really long number. They even say that by 9 a.m. we make 12. Well, that's so low. Listen, in the morning when I get up, the first thing I think of is how many times I'm going to hit the snooze button, you know, on my alarm clock, or whether or not I'm going to get up, and which side of the bed I'm going to get up, what mood I'm going to get. You know, I'm already at almost 12 before I even step feet on the, on the floor. And then we're making decisions, right, where are we going to be, what we're going to put on, what breakfast to have. We're making decisions all the time. And some of the decisions that we make are pretty small and, you know, maybe insignificant, but some decisions that we make are very important. In fact, some decisions are so important, they're difficult to make, like who to marry, where to work, what kind of career to have, where to live. And of course, this decision about our eternity, that's even a bigger decision. So decisions matter, and scientists are trying to figure out, essentially psychologists, do our decisions stem from our identity? Or does our identity come from our decision? Do our choices dictate our identity? Or does our identity dictate our choices? And the fact is, I think this probably both are true, right? Like the egg and the chicken, which came first? Listen, that's sort of futile. The point is, they are indeed connected. And what we're going to see today is we're going to cover our identity in Christ. And the reason why this is such an important passage for us today is because what we do, how we behave, The decisions that we make can be greatly impacted by our understanding of our identity in Christ. And so we're going to go into Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, your phone, open it up, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. By the way, we have some Bibles in the back. If you need one, feel free to get up. I don't get distracted by movement. Uh, but, But go there. Let me give you a quick overview of where we have been so far on this journey. We started in Romans 5, just because we had only so much time, so let me give you a quick background, okay? Paul, in his letter to the Romans, tells them that because, and tells us too, because we are justified, he uses a legal term, meaning we have been made right with God, we are now seen righteous in God's eyes through our faith in Jesus Christ, a gift of grace, a gift, not something of our own doing, because we are justified We have peace with God. That peace then allows us to have peace with others, a peace, we're told, beyond our understanding. In chapter 6, we learn that sin is no longer our master, that though sin is still present in our life, it no longer has power over us. 
In chapter 7, we learn that there is still a struggle, even if you have said, I believe in Jesus, I trust in Jesus, I'm a Christian, I go to church, you know, I'm reading my Bible, I'm doing all these things, but still there is a struggle in every single one of us because we still have sin living in us, sin present in our life, and we then have to deal with, what do we do with that? And so chapter 7, Paul tells us that we want to do some things, but we don't do them, we don't do the things we want to do. And we do the things we don't want to do. And that is the true struggle even for us who are believers. We started chapter 8 last week and we learned the most important thing we all ought to remember is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, which means that though sin is still present in our life and though we might fall victim to it, we might lean into it, we might swan dive into it, There is no condemnation. That's right. No condemnation. The condemnation that God did was against sin, not against the sinner. And so we live in the freedom that comes under God's grace. We learned at the beginning of chapter 8 last week that those who are in Christ are also in the Spirit. That essentially is the same thing. We're in Christ, we're in the Spirit. You notice I'm not talking about the Spirit in us, although Paul talks about that. But just like Jesus said that they might be in me and I in them, we're in Christ, we're in Spirit. That's who we are. And today we're going to look at what does it really mean to be in Spirit? What does it mean? What is that identity? What does that look like? Let us try to understand that. What we have been reminded, especially at the end of the passage from last week, is that we no longer have to say yes to the sin in our life. We no longer have to give in to the sin in our life. We no longer have to do what it dictates. So I want us to read just the last two verses from last week. Romans 8, verse 12 and 13. Listen to what it says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh. That word flesh really means our sinful desires, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh or your sinful desires, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put the death, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. You notice there's a choice. We have a choice to live in the freedom that has been given to us or not to. Even though we are no longer under condemnation, even though we have been justified and saved in grace, we have a choice and we have the power to make that choice. We do not have to act in accordance to our fleshly sinful desires or that of the sinful world. Most important thing I want you to get today, as we consider your identity in Christ, is that you have the power to overcome sin. You have the power to overcome sin. And that's because of who you are. You have the power. That's what you're going to get today. Why is this important? Because our behavior depends on what we understand about our identity. We are given a new identity, Paul tells us. In 2 Corinthians, this is what we're told. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. 
The old has gone. The new is here. We are a new creation. We have a new identity. The world knows nothing about this identity. And the world wants to define our identity. And so today we're going to dive in to understand what is this identity. And Paul uses a beautiful picture, a metaphor in a sense, to help us have a deeper understanding. And so let us read the first verse, verse 14 today. And I want you to read it with me. And I want us to read it twice, okay? For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Let's do that again. For those who are led by the Spirit are God are the children of God. You underline that, circle it, mark it. Here's what I want you to underline. Children of God. He's telling us, if you are led by the Spirit, you're a child of God. You are a child of God because you are led with the Spirit. These two truths correspond to each other. And we get this idea of the Holy Spirit leading into our lives. We know that through the Spirit, we can understand the Word of God. We can learn to interpret it. Through the Spirit, we know that we can overcome some of our challenges. We know that through the Spirit, God helps us obey His Word. And we know that through the Spirit, we are given gifts that we do not contain. Some we may have, some we need more of. The gifts of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Now, I know some of you might say, well, I'm a pretty joyful person. In fact, I know some of you wake up in the morning and you're like, jump out of bed and you're like, woo, let's party. The day is good. I'm not one of those. I get in the morning. I don't want to talk. I want no one to talk to me. I don't want to hear sound. In fact, I went for a walk this morning. It was still dark. I heard nothing. I loved it. So this idea of joy, especially early in the morning, well, it's not my gift. I get it as the day comes on. And some of you, you know, you might suffer with depression, and joy is a real challenge. You see, what we're told through Scripture is being led by the Spirit means that He gives us with even those things we cannot muster ourselves, we cannot even imagine how to get them. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us those gifts, whether it's kindness, self-control, gentleness. I'm sure that if you look at that list, there's at least one of them that you might go, oh yeah, that's the one I'm weak in. Well, I can guarantee you the Holy Spirit's power is that he will strengthen those gifts. So we get this idea of being led by the Spirit. But Paul says, those who are led by the Spirit are children of God. If you read this in the Greek, it actually says sons of God. And of course, it's a gender-inclusive language. It's not meaning just men. It's a term, sons of gods. You have to remember, this letter was written to the Roman church. People who lived in Rome would have been familiar with that term. Why? Because many emperors would call themselves sons of gods. We know that Augustus called himself a son of God. Domitian called himself a son of God. Many of the Greek mythology talk about these sons of God. And Paul is not saying that we're one of those. Paul is saying those are all fake. Here's the real thing. The real Sons, daughters, children of God are led by the Spirit. Here's the real thing. You have been looking at counterfeits. This is your identity. You are a child of God. 
And look at what he says, John says in chapter 1, verse 12. Some people, by the way, refuse to let the Holy Spirit lead them, refuse to accept that they're a child of God. But those who accept it, look what happens. Yet to all who did receive him, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or husband's will, but born of God. A supernatural identity given to us who believe. Child of God. You know, our minds, we just cannot comprehend what this means. It's a supernatural thing that God does, that he changes our identity as children of God. It's a divine assurance of who we are. And so I want us to take, kind of put this picture in our minds. When the Holy Spirit leads us, he marks us as children of God. Now, it would be nice if we had some sort of like tattoo or something that physically we can see that we're a child of God. But, you know, God doesn't work that way. Why? Because that's inefficient and not even close to what the truth is. When we are marked as a child of God, we bear his image become more and more like Christ, and we begin to reveal Christ to the world, right? I'll give you an illustration. If you're, I'm into illustrations, so this concept was hard for me to even, I don't want to just minimize it. It's a simple truth, and yet it's absolutely deeply profound. I did not grow up with a father. My father left when I was about a year old. So I don't get this picture of a child and a father. But my grandfather, my abuelo, I did get to know. And so he, he gave me a glimpse of what that relationship would be like. When I was really young, enough for I barely remember these memories, but I was told about it by my family. My grandfather, who was a contractor, would get home after work, sit in his favorite chair, turn on the color TV, which was pretty cool because our TV was small and black and white, and turn on his cigar and sit there, didn't want anyone talking to him, apparently he has my same disease, and um, just wanted silence in his own time. Well, I did not understand that that was a time that no one was supposed to bother him. And so I would run in, see him in his chair, jump on his lap, start playing with his big nose, gosh, it was big, and his ears, try to push away the cigar. I was like playing with my abuelo, you know what I'm saying? And you know what's cool? He had his agenda, he had his plan, and yet, and no one could get to him, and yet he welcomed me into his arms as his child. That's the picture I want you to have today. Paul understood that sin and temptation is always present in our life. Always present. There are spiritual forces working on a regular basis to undermine our identity. And we forget, especially when we're stressed, fatigued, feeling out of control, ill, dealing with all kinds of challenges and circumstances, believing the lies of the world, we start, we forget who we are. We forget our identity. And what Paul is trying to teach us today is that even though we struggle, that's true. We are free from the slavery of our desires. We do not have to live according to them. We can choose to live according to them, which he says brings death, or we can choose to live according to our identity, and that brings life. It's a choice. 
We have to choose. And listen, Jesus knows how hard this is for us. In Hebrews 2, it tells us that because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We're not alone in this. He's helping us through it. Which means that because you're a child of God, because I'm a child of God, no matter what happens, no matter what the enemy tries, no matter what desire it is, how big it is, how long it's happened, no matter what comes at us, our identity in Jesus Christ, our identity as a child of God will never be taken away. It's ours. Nothing, nothing, nothing can change that. Galatians 3.26 says this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Not our own doing. Not because we powered up. We did good. Through faith. Trusting that our identity isn't from our own, but his work in our lives. And Paul continues in verse 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. When the spirit comes into your life, you're no longer a slave. You're no longer to live in fear. In fact, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, Verse 7, for the Spirit of God gave, give us, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, self-discipline. Adoption. Paul uses this term now, adoption. Not that it's you're a child of God and adopted. It's actually another way to tell us the same thing. You see, this term adoption is a Roman term, a legal term. I know, we know adoption today, but there were a legal process of adoption back in this time. And what the people who heard this, they would have known that when a family chose to adopt a child, this child would remove all, all ties with their prior family. All those ties would now be broken. All debts would be canceled. All privileges that would be bestowed to the children who are born of natural order, would be also given to those who are adopted. Do you see the beauty in what Paul is doing here? I'm a mother. I have three beautiful children. And I know how much I love my children, but listen, I did not get to choose them. I made a decision to have a child. I didn't know if I was going to have a girl or a boy, whether they were going to be nice or not. It was a choice, but a partial choice, right? When you adopt a child, that's a choice. You don't have to do that. It's an act of love, compassion, self-sacrifice. When we bring a child into our lives and say, you are one of us. So this beautiful term, adoption, Paul uses for us to see how beautiful God's love is for each of us. Ephesians 1 says it this way. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. In according to what? His pleasure. 
He did it for his pleasure, on purpose. He brings us in as his children. I have two stepdaughters. They're older than my kids. When my husband and I got married, now he has three stepchildren. I have two stepchildren. We made a cognitive choice and decision to love our children, all of them, as they're all ours. Now listen, I know there are times when I can tell that I might be treating my children a little different than his, and I have to work on that. It's an act, a choice that I make, no matter whether it's being received back. It's a choice I make. They are now my children. My children are now his children. It's a choice. That's what God does with us. What that means is that now we get to participate in his family. We have a new family. And then he says, Abba, Father. Through this spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. Now that's an informal Aramaic term, a very tender term that a baby would use for a father. Daddy, we say, papi in Spanish, papa. A very tender term for our father, a very intimate term between our relationship with our father. It isn't that we're just his children. We are close to our father. You remember when Jesus was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane to deal with whether or not to do God's will or his will. Look what he does. He prayed three times. It says, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. But he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, Paul now equates us to Jesus. He says, just like Jesus, in his most painful time, deep, deep suffering prior to going to the cross. Listen, he was fully human. It hurt. He was fully God. He took on the weight of our sins, past, present, future, everyone. He took on that weight. He knew what he was about to do. Listen, none of us can understand that level of pain and suffering. In that moment, he cries out, Abba, Father. And Paul tells us we can do the same. We can run to our Abba, our Father, and cry to him. That's the kind of God we have. Not only does he call us his children, but he wants to have an intimate relationship with us. And then in Romans 8:16, just in case we missed it, Paul tells us again, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children because we're going to forget. In that time of suffering, of great testing, in that time of temptation, in that time when we feel maybe an anger comes up and we can't control ourselves, we're going to forget that we are his children. And the spirit, like a witness, says, hey, 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 you're a child of God. No matter what the enemy is telling you, you're a child of God. No matter what that person is telling you, you're a child of God. Do not forget you're a child of God. Done, finished, unchanging. Even if we forget. Now listen. This is to me the deepest assurance we could have about our identity. In Ephesians 6, we see the description of the full armor of God. In my opinion, when we take on the identity 
of Jesus Christ, and we take on this reality that we are children of God. You know what we're doing? We're putting on the full armor of God. We're putting on the belt of truth, the breastplate, breastplate of righteousness, which is of Jesus. We put on the helmet of salvation to take our thoughts captive. We put on the shoes of hope so that we can share that with others. We hold on to the shield of faith to fight against those arrows that the enemy throws at us. And we hold on to the sword of truth, the word of God, with, from which we can fight the enemy's work. But that comes when we believe and understand that we are children of God. That truth, from that truth, our actions, our decisions, our choices come through. We get to decide, are we going to live by our sinful desires? Are we going to give in to them? Or are we not? And even if we don't, we get to try again tomorrow. Because what we're told in Scripture is that Jesus will finish the work he's done in us. And then in verse 17, look what it says. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed you share in his suffering, in order that we may also share in his glory. I'm not going to study all of this today. We're actually going to talk about sharing in his suffering next week. But today I want us to talk about this idea of sharing in his glory and being heirs of Jesus, of God. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Now that's fascinating. Remember, you are adopted into a family with the same rights as everyone else. Now in the Roman times... Even if you adopted children, if you had an inheritance to give your children, you could choose how much to give to any of them. In the Jewish context, the oldest would get a double portion. What Paul is saying here, it's more like everybody gets the same. Jesus, us, same. Is that not fascinating? Humbling. More assurance of our identity and the benefits of that identity that we get to share in his glory. Do you remember that Philippians tells us that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion? And then we're told in Hebrews 2, both the one who makes us people holy and those who are being made holy are of the same family. Jesus is not ashamed. Call you brother and sister. Not ashamed of that. In fact, he even told God at the end of his life, he said, I am giving my glory to my disciples. May they be in me as I am in them. He tells God he wants to share his own inheritance with his followers. And Galatians 3.26 says, If you belong to Christ, then... You are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. God keeps his promise. You are a child of God. I want you to say it with me. I am a child of God. Okay, you're not convinced. I just spent a whole lot of time talking. You know, when I prepare for these messages, I study the scripture as carefully as I can. I read commentaries, I reflect on it, I listen to other sermons. I work really hard at figuring out how to teach the passage. And that's good and that's important. But at the end of the day, it's just information if it doesn't strike the heart. 
And it's my role as a pastor to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, to pastor you in your struggle, but also to be a witness. You know, because I'm just like you. I struggle too. I understand in my brain sort of this identity. But I wonder, how does it apply? What is, I mean, we're going to walk out of here in a little bit. How is this going to make our lives different? And this week, as I was preparing, I was praying. I was actually typing the outline, praying to God to give me some way to understand how to apply this. Well, make a prayer like that. God answers it. My phone rang. I get this phone call. Conversation goes for a few minutes. I feel my blood boiling. Anybody have that kind of experience? Now listen, I'm Puerto Rican. Not all Puerto Ricans are like this. I just happen to have this sort of temper thing. It's an area for me to grow in. (laughs) So this conversation is going, and I'm just getting worked up. And I did the best I could to hang up the phone without saying the wrong thing. But once I got off the phone and I went back to typing my outline, I could not concentrate. It was like, I had this vision and my brain would not get away from the words that were said and the things I should have said and the things I will say and the things I will do. And it was just like really ugly. I'm sort of putting myself out there because I am thinking some of you experience things like this. All of a sudden I have this urge, desire to take revenge. Now I know I wouldn't put it that way at the moment, I would say, like, I'll do this and sort of make it sound like it's not revenge. But then the little pleasure in my stomach let me know that's revenge. And I started to realize, oh, no, I can't do this. First of all, i got to get my outline done. i got to preach this sermon. But secondly, what am I preaching on? I have the power against this desire of mine to do what I don't want to do. So I have to put that into practice. How do I do that? So this is what I did. And this might seem weird to you, I'm sorry, but this is what I did. I started to imagine God's throne. In Revelations, we're told that God's throne is this incredible place. God, his glory, his light, so bright. The whole throne is bright with his light, his goodness, his righteousness. Angels are singing. Elders are sitting by him. All the people are kneeling before God. And I pictured me as this little kid, oblivious to the importance of God's throne, running into God's throne, jumping on his lap, and having a good cry, whining about what had just been told to me, how unfair this was, how why would they treat me this way? I'm doing my best, and yet it's not good enough. I mean, I just whined and whined. And in that time of imagining this place. I had to come to terms with why I was so upset. What was driving my desire to revenge? And I gave that to God too. And at the end of this sort of time of reflection, I felt a little bit better. Then I got a text. You know, this has ever happened to you? Like you determine, I'm not going to give to that temptation. You know, you, you hit You close your browser because you saw something you shouldn't be looking at. You say no to that person who's trying to tempt you into something. You say no to that drug. You say no to that alcohol. Whatever that thing might be for you, you say no. And the minute you do, it's like, woo, it all comes at you big time. Am I the only one? 
So this stuff is coming at me now, like fast. And I'm thinking, I'm not feeling any better. I'm all, now I'm upset again, more upset. Now I'm upset because I can't even control my upsetness. And I'm going through this process of trying to get myself in control, self-control. And it dawned on me, uh, you may want to read your outline. You have the power. You're a child of God. So this is what I did. This is, gets really weird now. I stood in front of our mirror, and I looked at myself eye to eye. And I said to myself, you are a child of God. You do not need to live in accordance of your sin. You are not a slave to it. You are not a slave to that emotion. You're not a slave to that anger. You are a child of God. You know what that means? God is making you to be like Jesus. This is an opportunity for you to behave like Jesus and grow in his likeness. That even though more pain might come your way, it will grow you and mature you into his likeness. An enemy, now I'm talking to him, you have no control here. You have no power over me. It has been done on the cross. I am free, and I did not mean to rhyme. I told them, listen, whatever power you think you have, it's under God's sovereignty. If he allows it, it's because it's going to produce some good somehow, even if I don't know how. If he allows it, it's because he's going to multiply it for his purposes. But you have no power over my identity. I am a child of God. You can't do anything about that. So out. In the name of Jesus. Right? I wonder if as we walk out of here today, and by the way, I can guarantee you, you're going to get hit just because we had this discussion. I already did. When you do, will you make a choice? Will you choose to live not in accordance to the flesh, but in accordance to the Spirit who is in you, your identity? The Holy Spirit isn't a tool we get to wind and use. The Holy Spirit is the power that works in us and through us. Will you make the choice to even just tell yourself, I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. I'm not going to do that. That's not what a child of God does. And if I do, and if I fail just that time or that season or that week or that month, that year, I know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I get to try it again, and the Holy Spirit will finish the work he's begun in me. Will you think of that when you get tempted today, tomorrow, the next day? You are a child of God. And as we go into these stations, these are really truth declarations of that identity. We come to the cross boldly with our junk, our worst stuff, 
And we say, I'm giving it to you, Christ, because you have already paid the price for it. Why am I carrying this? And that power is gone. We come to the wall of prayer in the back where we say, Abba, Father, Daddy, I need your help. Or thank you for what you've done. This is where we go and pray. We also have a prayer warrior up front, so you don't have to just go to the wall. You can have someone pray with you. We come to the candle and we light a candle because Jesus is making us more and more like him. He was the light of the world. Now we get to be the light of the world. He wants to make us his children so that the world would know who he is. So we light a candle to pray for someone who perhaps isn't yet a child because they don't believe. Someone who we want for them, that they would be led by the Spirit. We remember them. We remember that our lives matter in what God's doing in this world. And we come to the communion table. This is the most beautiful picture. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is in you. That power is the picture we are reminded by when we come to the communion. His body, his blood shed for us, and he resurrected so that we would be victorious. Thank you again for listening. Make sure to learn more about Inez Franklin at www.inezfranklin.com. You can help share these teachings by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sending this episode to a friend. Make sure to follow Inez Franklin on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and more, where she is engaging with the community and inviting us to participate with God and his work together. Thanks again. Thanks again.